if you sort of get a chance to sell your first company, even if it's not for like the biggest amount and if it's a life-changing amount of money, right? Like the first time you made $1 million or something like that, you should just take that deal because life is long. You'll get a chance to start a lot of companies. You can do lots of things, but if you have that like nest egg and that security, it's really life-changing. Like having one success under your belt is really life-changing. And so for me, that first win would have been really meaningful and I should have taken it. Hello, my name is Lauren D'Souza and you're listening to Retain, the Customer Retention Podcast. More and more companies are wanting to focus on retaining customers, but what exactly are the powers of customer retention? And how are companies using it to keep their customers coming back for more? That's what we're here to find out. Joining us today is renowned entrepreneur, marketer, and author, Rand Fishkin. Rand is best known as the co-founder and CEO of SparkToro, a company that businesses discover the publications and influencers that impact their target audiences. Rand is an influential voice in the world of marketing and entrepreneurship, sharing his knowledge through speaking engagements, blog posts, and his ongoing commitment to helping marketers navigate the ever-evolving landscape of digital marketing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rand. Yeah, my pleasure, Lauren. Good to be here. I am excited for our conversation today because I think we have a couple different topics to get through. But before we dive into the whole world of it, let's just start with getting to know more about you and what got you into marketing in the first place. Sure. I started a company originally called SEO Moz that became Moz. And that company was in the search engine optimization space, software space. And that is what got me into, into marketing originally was that company and helping people rank their websites in Google. And then over the course of my career, obviously, I've come to realize that search is not the only way (laughs) that one can (laughs) do marketing. And this company, SparkToro, which has been around four or five years and now is focused on a broader array of marketing channels and sources, helping people discover publications and people and events and newsletters and websites and social accounts that influence their audiences so that they can go reach them in lots of ways that aren't just trying to rank for or bid for a keyword in Google. That's awesome. And how did you even get started with starting your own company with all these? I know you've had quite the experiences of starting multiple companies. So how'd you even start in the first place? And what got you inspired to start a company like Moz or the original name of it? Yeah, sort of accidental entrepreneur. So I dropped out of college so that I could do web design stuff for my mom's small business, which was helping businesses in the late 90s and early 2000s get their first web presence. And I like the internet. I like the web. I thought web design was fun and cool. Turns out I have no talent as a designer or (laughs) an artist. Um, Who said? (laughs) Yeah. So visual design is not my thing, unfortunately. But that kind of through long twists and turns evolved into SEO Moz. And that was like an evolution of that business. And we sort of were building that one to try and save the other one and not an intentional path by any means. I love that. I feel like one of my favorite things about hearing entrepreneurial stories or journeys is that everybody has a different story. And that's kind of the beauty of it, in my opinion, because everyone has different paths. They go down different ways and it's all in the mission of trying to solve a problem or do something like that. So I think that's cool because that's really interesting. And I guess in your time doing SparkToro, 
what have you, what are some like the main lessons that you've learned about the world of marketing? Because one thing that I think is really fascinating is the fact that marketing is always changing. There's so many aspects under it. Marketing is such obviously such a broad word, but have you seen any big trends or any big things that have changed drastically as you've been working on SparkToro? Absolutely. I think the one of the first kind of big pieces of research that I did at SparkToro was around the rise in in zero-click searches in Google. So this is essentially over the past decade, but especially strong over the last five, six years, Google has been presenting searchers with what they call instant answers. So you search Google for how old is Keanu Reeves? And they'll just tell you, right? Like you don't have to click on a result. You don't have to go visit a website. And of course that answer is, that's not Google doing research and sort of producing their own content. They're just scraping it from your websites and then aggregating that and giving you an answer. I think many folks fear with generative AI that this is going to become even more of a thing, but honestly, it's been happening so much already. I don't know that the generative AI stuff is going to accelerate it all that massively. Like it's just such a huge part of it. So that big shift over the last few years toward a world in which two thirds of Google searches end without a click is a massive change to the sort of digital marketing landscape. I think the other big ones are, it's not just Google who loves the zero click thing, right? All the social media platforms say seven or eight years ago, sent a lot of traffic to other websites. So, you know, if you produced an article, you produce a podcast, right? And you yeah. promote that podcast on LinkedIn and promote it on Twitter and promote it on Facebook and maybe even Instagram or something and put the link in bio. And you could drive lots of traffic from those places. And now all of those platforms and all the other ones with the possible exception of Mastodon, like yeah. every single social network that's corporate owned is trying to keep people on their website. They don't want people to leave and go to other sites. They're trying to keep you on their app or platform. And so because they they can serve you more ads that way, they can make more money that way. And so the rise of zero-click content has become universal, sort of coined by my colleague, Amanda Natividad. And what Amanda talks about is this like, hey, if you want to do well with a LinkedIn post, don't include a link. If you want to do well with a Twitter post, don't include a link. If you want to do well with a YouTube video, like put it on YouTube, but then take a snippet of the clip and share that on your social channels and then have sort of this concept of like, well, maybe I'll reply to the tweet with another link after six hours and I'll drive a little bit of traffic. But the idea being that, you know, essentially it's brand exposure and awareness and audience building that happens on social and then traffic driving happens after. So zero click universe has become a massive thing over the last five, six years, really changed how digital marketing works. I'm curious because obviously our podcast is about retention and we really focus on understanding what are the levers and the different aspects to customer retention. And funny enough, we don't really, really touch on retention in startups as much. Like we haven't really dove into that topic too, too much just yet. So in your experience in all of the startup experience that you've seen and had and all that kind of stuff, how important is thinking about retention in the world of startups? And it might be a broad question, but I want you to take it whichever way you feel is best. I mean, I think if you're a venture style investor and you're investing in subscription businesses, Mm -hmm. then retention is something that you 
care a ton about, right? Like you want to see negative net churn in the companies that you invest in or path to get there, because that's the only way that they're going to become sort of billion dollar companies and make you and your LPs even richer. And that's fine, but that's not what I care about, right? (laughs) And I think that because sort of the billionaire capitalist class cares a lot about it because it's kind of how they make their money. They've trained entrepreneurs to be very obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And there are aspects of retention that are very important, right? So it, it is definitely true that if you have a higher retention business, it's often easier to scale that business over time. Not always though. I think Here's the very weird thing that people, for some reason, don't talk about in terms of retention, which is it tends to be the case that the higher your retention is, the more challenging and complex your sales process, your onboarding, your training, your customer service, your support, and your acquisition costs are. So all of those things are more challenging, more complex, more difficult, more expensive, require more people, require more structure. In high retention businesses, most high retention businesses versus low retention businesses. So a subscription business that has a high churn rate, but a high recidivism rate, meaning people come back again and again and again, or a business that sells things one off. This is a silly example, but I buy a lot of Snickers bars every year, like probably 20. (laughs) Maybe that's not a lot. Maybe I'm somewhere in the mid sales <laughs> thing for the Mars Corporation, right? Mars Bars Corporation in terms of Snickers bars. But like Mars makes a lot of money. Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. This is the world's like wealthiest company, right? LVMH. And they sell champagne and they sell clothing and fashion items and luxury goods. And there's no subscription. There's no retention. Someone buys a bottle of Hennessy Cognac are they going to buy another one in the next five years? Maybe they might, but they might not. It's fine. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be a high retention, high subscription company. You can sell one thing one time. And if it delights people and they share it with their friends, and then some of those friends buy it. And then a few years later, they buy something else from you and you sell other things. That's all great too. It is not the case that subscription and retention and making sure no one ever quits your business is the only way to build a successful thing. It's just sort of become an obsession of tech VC world because they've really liked that business model. And a few businesses have made them tons of money in that space. And so they kind of see that as an advantage, right? Things like Amazon Prime or Netflix or HubSpot, Salesforce, these very high retention businesses. So my general like learning and wisdom is there's always another side. Like if someone says, this is the thing that matters most, this is the most important and only thing, you should definitely be like, well, that person's lying to me. Like they don't know what's (laughs) up. Everything is shades of gray. Everything is complex. And there is truth on all sides to it. So you can build a very exciting and interesting business with a low retention tech product. I know no one believes this, but it's true. Jaws are being picked up off the floor as we speak. (laughs) But I I really like that point because even... My personal goal with something like this podcast is bringing different perspectives, bringing different ideas, bringing different insights. So I do really appreciate that outlook on things because people don't typically come on and say something like that. And the fact is, it's interesting to know what that thought process is or how that is, because even myself being in the Toronto startup scene, 
you hear about that, the high retention, high subscription all the time, 24 seven, people are obsessed with it. It's very much the metric of success and vanity in terms of the VC backed companies for sure. But even just so I like the idea that there's alternating ideas or alternating perspectives on this. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into this and talk about just this whole concept of letting customers go and earning their business again, because I guess retention can be can show up in many different forms, many different ways. Doesn't have to be the, what you just said, the high subscription, high retention all the time. So tell me more about your thoughts on the value of letting customers go and earning their business again. Let's talk right all about that. <laughs> so my basic perspective is that the VC defined metric of lifetime value, customer lifetime value is simplistic and dumb. And I don't know how they defend it. <laughs> I really don't get it. So the way that it was calculated and you know, we were told to calculate it at Moz was essentially like when someone signs up for a subscription to the time that they cancel, that is their lifetime value. That's it. Super simple, overly simplistic, right? It doesn't really make sense. You might, you might ask the question like, well, Rand, what if I sign up for SparkToro and I use it, I get a bunch of value out of it, but... I'm a small business. I don't have a big budget. So I don't need it next month. So I cancel. And then six months from now, I need it again. So I sign back up again. I use it for a few months and then I cancel. Was my customer lifetime value only, was I two different customers who had two different lifetime values or was I one customer? And if I had a good experience with it and I got value from it and I quit and I shared it with other people, does that count for anything? Mm-hmm. Like, is that a good thing? As opposed to, give an example, I would highly recommend that no one ever sign up for the New York Times. New York Times has a subscription, right? You can go to their website and start trying to read your third article of the month or whatever. Yeah. You'll get this paywall. I signed up for the New York Times maybe five, six years ago. And if you want to cancel your New York Times subscription, you have to call during the three hours that they are open on the East Coast which is nine to noon. So that's six to 9 a.m. Pacific. I was never awake at those times. So for literally like 18 months, Lauren, I wanted to call and cancel. And finally I was in New York or, or Philadelphia or something. And I was like, oh shit, I'm awake at the right time. I'm going to call and freaking cancel my damn New York Times subscription. Like it's about time. So they had done the thing to like make their subscription really sticky. But now in me, they have an, an anti-influencer. <laughs> yeah. Like... Someone who hates them and thinks that their product is just crappy and they've done all the things to like lock me in, but I really hate that. I think people complain about this with everything from Netflix to Spotify to gym memberships, right? These businesses that essentially try and get their tendrils into you and then keep billing you no matter what. And like, oh, I'm sorry, your agreement with us says that you can't cancel until your renewal period. Oh, your renewal period ended 30 days ago. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to keep paying us for another year. Like all that crap, right? All these things that businesses are trained to do because investors have told them retention's the thing that matters most. And I fundamentally disagree. I think lifetime value should absolutely represent over the lifetime of period that a potential customer might use your product, how much do they pay you and how much value do they get and how many people do they bring back to your service through word of mouth and saying nice things about you. And if you measure things that way, you will optimize for a business that works in a really different way, which is to be incredibly generous 
easy to cancel, easy to get a refund if you need it, easy to sign back up, right? And start using it again. Doesn't have to be a business that's absolutely essential to your sort of function. It can just be useful when it's useful and not needed when it's not needed. And I think there is so much more opportunity in those kinds of businesses. And entrepreneurs pay no attention to them because investors pay no attention to them because they don't like this idea of being valuable to someone over a real lifetime. They just want that customer length period to be as long as possible and for it to be as hard to quit as possible. I think it's interesting thinking about that because even myself as a consumer, there's been multiple times where I've tried a product, I had it for a little while, but I stopped it for some reason. It doesn't have to be because I didn't like it anymore. It's just maybe I didn't need it anymore at that time or conditions changed or something like that. But A, I told a bunch of people about it. Actually, probably one of the best examples of that is certain items that you would be buying for living on campus at university. I'm only at university for four years, but I know so many people who are going into university or people who are there at the same time or whatever it may be, or people who do other degrees afterward. And XYZ products who are good for me in the time of university, even if I don't need it anymore, I'm happy to recommend it to somebody else. And I've brought so many potential customers to certain products because of that same mentality, where technically my lifetime value doesn't stop at the fact that I've graduated my university degree because I'm still bringing new people into that business. And so I think you make a great point there because the first example that came to my mind was actually HelloFresh because I used to use it at university and A, things changed. It wasn't part of my budget anymore and I wanted to change it, but I did like it. It was definitely part, like I definitely enjoyed the product and it was awesome. It's just more of a luxury than it was a necessity for me. And then I think I told at least like 10 to 15 people about it and they got the student discounts and they did whatever they needed to do. And then also when all of us graduated and all of us started getting full-time jobs and moving downtown and things like that, people start reconsidering that same product again because it makes sense. So I think the point is very evident in certain like real life examples as well. And I think even just kind of going a little bit back towards the whole idea of, I guess the theme of what I'm getting here from our conversation today is different perspectives and I really like it. So just kind of going back to some of the things we were talking about before, the idea of letting customers go and earning their business back. I just wanted to touch on one more point around that just to kind of get some more insight and dive a little bit deeper. But I'm curious because obviously you've now told us like, why is there value in that? What is the value in that? But if someone was listening to this podcast right now, what would you say are some insights or some ideas as to how they can go about maintaining the relationships of customers who have left? Because I think that might be a bit of a confusing thing for people to understand because people don't typically think in this way. We're always thinking towards how do I keep people coming back every single month, highest retention rate, whatever. So I'm curious to know from your point of view, A, how do you maintain that relationship when they've left? And B, almost tying into what you said before, like what's the value of transparency as a company when you're doing things like working on like letting customers go and trying to earn their business back? Like what are some of the best practices around? I mean, there's potentially tactical things that you can do, right? Get Mm -hmm. these folks to follow your social accounts, get these folks to subscribe to your email newsletter get them to come to your monthly webinars, right? And have this educational content or interest level content or influencer type content, you know, whatever it is, entertainment content, if you so choose, that gets people into your universe. 
those are tactical things you could do. But fundamentally, in the design of the business, I think is where all of the magic really sits. Because it's not about keeping in touch with that customer. You don't need them to keep in touch. I don't need someone to subscribe to SparkToro's newsletter or stay in touch with me. Or in fact, I mean, I hope they do, but no offense, I wouldn't be able to process the emails, right? (laughs) I couldn't stand it. I couldn't be able to have this conversation if all my customers were keeping in touch with me. (laughs) Like, let it go. If they love your product, they'll come back to it. It's about saying, hey, rather than sort of gating the value that the product provides Mm -hmm. and creating a product that loses its value when you leave, we're going to create something that is valuable whenever you're a subscriber. And we're going to think about sectors and spaces that are underserved by other businesses because their investors won't let them prioritize people who come back again and again. Right. They are only thinking about people who need something every month or every year or whatever it is. And so my bias would be to say, hey, go investigate these spaces that are mm-hmm. unfilled because of this. What are one-time types of purchases or something that's a repeat purchase? Like someone will come back again and again. If it's retail and e-commerce and Shopify stores and that kind of thing, it's, well, you sold them a thing. Are there other things like that that they might love to buy in the future? Do you have a way of taking the product that they love and identifying the traits about it that they love and then entering other product spaces that they're likely to be in and marketing those things toward them and seeing what works? Have conversations with your customers, do research on them. Maybe think about having a third party do those interviews because founders tend to get very kind responses and you need the tough love to. Before I let you go and end off this wonderful episode, we always end off on a really fun note, which is the lightning round. So first question is, what is one skill or attribute that you believe has been vital to your success? Kindness. Nice. I like that. (laughs) Right into the point. I believe it. (laughs) Okay. Second question. Which movie franchise would you love to be in charge of the marketing for? That is a great question. I'm going to say the Wes Anderson franchise. Okay, very interesting. Why is that? I'm curious. I know I said one like as quick as you can, but I'm curious to know why. I think any of the like big name ones would require someone with a lot more, I'm going to say, broad foci. Like they go after this, the Marvel movies or, or yeah, yeah. Harry Potter or whatever. They're just trying to like maximize audience. But I think the Wes Anderson fan base is uniquely identifiable. and it's not focused on growth at all costs. Like he's just, he and that world of all the actors who work for him work for like scale for the minimum SAG rates. So like whoever it is, right? Scarlett Johansson, when she does a Wes Anderson movie, she's getting paid whatever it is, 500 bucks a day or something, right? It's not like $60 million. So in any case, yeah, I think that that's much more my world. I like indie, I like small, I like focused audiences. I think I'm good at marketing to that type of group. Very cool. And last but not least, you and a plus one have been invited to a dinner party. Your plus one has to be someone from the marketing world. Who do you choose and why is that? There's so many lovely people in the marketing world. I'm sad I can only bring one person. So why it's a hard um, question. Lightning round. Okay, do you know Perna Vergi? I think she just published a book or she's just about to, too. 
but she works at, at LinkedIn. She was at Microsoft for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of all things content and ad. And she has this book coming out, I think in about three months called High Impact Content Marketing. Okay, yeah. Anyway, I just pre-ordered it. Perna's been lovely to me my whole career. And so I would love to bring her to a dinner. That'd be super fun. Cool. Well, if she hears this by chance, then she knows you want to have dinner with her. So good to go. I mean, she knows, she knows I want to have dinner with her. (laughs) But the podcast will really just help solidify the plans. (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. Okay. And last but not least, is there a piece of life or marketing advice that someone shared with you once that has always stayed with you? Yeah. So I have a friend, Dharmesh Shah, who's one of the co-founders at HubSpot. And Dharmesh and I became friends like kind of in the early days of HubSpot, like maybe a year into that business. And it was relatively early days of Moz as well. And Dharmesh told me like, hey, if you sort of get a chance to sell your first company, even if it's not for like the biggest amount, and if it's a life-changing amount of money, right? Like the first time you made $1 million or something like that, you should just take that deal. Because life is long, you'll get a chance to start a lot of companies, you can do lots of things. But if you have that like nest egg and that security, it's really life-changing. Like having one success under your belt is really life-changing. And I think he was absolutely right. I wish I had listened to him. So maybe some advice for other entrepreneurs who might get that offer and they're like, well, it's not quite perfect. I think I could grow even more the next like five years. And my friends, if it's your first one, especially if you don't come from a wealthy background, like whatever, most entrepreneurs, frustratingly, are come from wealthy parents, right? So they like don't have to worry about it. But I did not. And yeah. so for me, that like that first win would have been really meaningful and I should have taken it. Interesting. I think that's good. I actually just personally, I believe that everything happens for a reason. Things come at the right time. So even if it isn't, let's say you were hoping for X amount, but something else gets presented to you. I think that it's happening for a reason and you should take the opportunity because other things will come and you'll be a serial entrepreneur if that's the focus we're talking about. But I like that. I think it's a very realistic view on things and it can always be an optimistic view for the future as well. So I really appreciate that. But thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Retain the Customer Retention Podcast is brought to you by Gameball. If you want to turn casual buyers into loyal lifetime customers, make sure to check out the episode description to book a demo with Gameball today. Also, make sure to subscribe to Retain the Customer Retention Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and you never miss an episode. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.